Unconditional and Uncensored. I'm Lauren. And I'm Renata. And it has been fucking hot in Switzerland. (laughs) (sighs) I know, I know, talking about the weather is not very original or exciting, but the Swiss have got no fucking idea how to handle hot weather. How are the houses built there? Are they brick? Are they wood? Are they, how do they, how do they insulate them there? Because you, you guys are obviously set up for the cold. Yep, we are very well set up for the cold. Uh, the houses, we it's very seldom that you actually see wooden houses. Um, I guess maybe in the countryside, you know, some of these sort of like traditional alpine chalet kind of buildings. But mm. most houses are made with brick. So, and, and they've got super, super good heating systems. But at the moment that the temperature goes above 30 and we have no idea what to do. <laughs> and it's actually quite interesting is and it's one of those things that I've had to learn moving to Switzerland and you know some of the like I almost want to say irrational phobias or irrational suspicions that they have Mm -hmm. is that they don't believe in using air conditioners or fans for the fear of getting sick it's 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 quite frankly it's they have like a suspicion of the moment that wind gets onto their necks that they're going to get sick Oh, it's like that old wives' tale of you know, don't run out, run around with wet hair, or don't go out after it's rained, and <laughs> exactly. And it is, I don't know. It's just I find it extremely frustrating. So, yeah, I, I I know I come from South Africa, and I know we also have pretty warm temperatures there too. But I've never been a person for summer, um. So I heavily rely on my cooling systems. <laughs> so getting to Switzerland, yes. uh, there's no aircon anywhere. It's just. Hmm. Are there many swimming pools there? Swimming pools. Yes. Uh, actually, most people go swimming in the lakes. All right, that makes um, sense. Yeah, there's quite a lot of lakes in Switzerland. Uh, I mean, I can actually see one up my window, so mm-hmm. I suppose I could go swim in the lake. But um, yeah, otherwise, it's also it's, it's not common that people have like their own swimming pool. For example, like we tend to have in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, that's yes. not a thing here either. They have a spa here. It's like a massive jacuzzi. Well, massive. It's a double-sized jacuzzi or just a normal jacuzzi size. They call it a, a spa or a swim spa. But that seems to be the thing, that the in thing here. People don't really have swimming pools here. Mm. But do you have public swimming pools? Yes. Um, yeah, there are public pools in most districts. Um, mm. Not that I've been to one, but yes. And then the beach, of course, is just down the road. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I can imagine, or at least I would very much hope that you guys are equipped for hot weather because I think <laughs> on your side, your your hot weather is probably more severe and it lasts a bit longer than ours. You know, I thought so too, but last year we had winter up until the second week of December, um, like full-blown 10 degrees outside, cold, raining, shit weather. And now, well, I guess this year things are seeming to to change a bit. It's gotten more of a springy sense in there. Mind you, we did have snow again over the weekend. But yes, I think this year we're going to have a bit, a bit of a longer a longer um, summer. Yeah. I don't know. Changing, changing times and climates and all that. But I mm. mean, okay, we're talking about the weather. I think that's like the most small talky, small talk kind of topic that you could possibly <laughs> start a podcast with. Well... I'm going on leave this week. I fly to Rockhampton today to go and see my sister and my nephew. And um, I don't think it could have come at a better time. I've had 
a full on five or six months. Um, so I think this is, yeah, this has come at the right time. I'm so excited mm. and I freaking cannot wait. My sister said to me, Lauren, bring your bathers. And I was like, is it even warm enough to swim there? Because we are freezing. I am freezing here in Melbourne and they're swimming. So yay, I'm going to go to go and wear some shorts. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll I'll swap you. You wear your shorts and I would happily wear my winter jacket again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, let's get into it for today. In light of our self-dubbed August Awareness Month, in which we're dedicating time and awareness towards people living with chronic conditions, disease, disorders, and mental health challenges, Lauren, you've brought us something that has been a journey for yourself and something that I have personally witnessed your hardships on. Yes, um, I'd like to play the vulnerability card on myself a little bit today. And uh, it's something that I've been a bit of a, or that has been a bit of a touchy subject for me for, for a number of years. Um, a bit of an insecurity of mine uh, and something that I've had a lot of difficulty admitting openly and talking about but something that I know I'm not the only person who struggles with. And this is my relationship with food and having a binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Eating disorders are becoming a lot more prevalent. Um, mm. And I do think that society doesn't foster a safe environment for us to talk about it. Um, and it's one of those things that I think it's really important to open the dialogue on. So I think, first of all, before we get into anything else, thank you for pulling that vulnerability card mm -hmm. and being willing to share your journey with us. I mean, you never know. There might be someone who listens to this episode and because of your vulnerability decides to reach out for help with their struggles with binge eating or, or other eating disorders that they might have. Mm. But I think people throw the term binging around quite flippantly nowadays, but probably don't know what binge eating disorder really entails. So to give our listeners the right context for the episode, what is binge eating disorder officially? Hmm. So maybe I'll go into like the the scientific stuff, the, the what is it, the causes, um, some of the symptomology or the symptoms before getting into more of my struggles just to create a, a little bit more of a context and so that everyone kind of has a bit of an understanding of what we're talking about. So mm -hmm. a binge eating disorder is a serious um, eating disorder in which you frequently consume unusually large amounts of food and you feel unable to stop or you feel a loss of control around eating. So these individuals may also feel embarrassed about overeating and vow to stop, but you feel such a compulsion that you can't resist the urges and continue binge eating. Now, binge eating can be further subdivided into two categories. You get objective binge eating and subjective binge eating. Now, objective binge eating is where an individual may consume objectively large quantities of foods during a binge episode. So Although diagnostic criteria doesn't focus on the caloric intake, um, more often than not, the doctors do use that as a guide because it's very indicative of sort of what the behaviors are behind it. But these individuals can consume as much as 5,000 to 15,000 calories in a single binging episode and cool. can commonly also be perceived by the outside observer as 
extreme or notably extreme amounts of food mm-hmm. where subjective binge eating is where an individual perceives themselves to be eating an extreme amount of food or to be an extreme eater, but doesn't actually eat extreme amounts of food. So it's more of a, like a mild to, or a small to moderate amount of food, but you still feel that loss of control around your eating and your eating behaviors. Now, hmm. interestingly, um, a study that was done on the symptomology, symptomatology between the two found that individuals with objective binge eating disorder are more likely to prete- uh, present with purging and bulimic behaviors, whereas individuals with subjective binge eating disorder are significantly great, uh, present with significantly greater depression and variance in restraint, their abilities of restraint. That's really interesting. Um, first of all, I didn't know that, um, well, I didn't know before this episode, preparing mm-hmm. for this episode, that um, binge eating disorder, that it could also include two different types of binging mm. episodes. But I find it super interesting about the fact that those with subjective binge eating also have greater depression. To be honest with you, as someone who struggles with binge eating themselves, I wasn't aware of the difference between the two and no one really comes at you and tells you that there is a difference. It's just kind of a, you know, Mm. you've got a binge eating disorder, but they don't, they don't come to you and say, you've got a subject of binge eating disorder or you, Mm. you engage in subject of binge eating. Um, It's just, you know, this kind of umbrella term and the research behind it also just kind of talks as an umbrella term rather than Mm. distinguishing between the two. So when they talk about symptoms, then the symptoms encompass everything. And I guess that's kind of how we approach it going forward as well. But we approach whatever research I'm presenting today. But yeah, interesting that they don't distinguish between the two, but also very interesting that there would be a difference in psychological symptoms um, and mental health between the two. Mm. I think it's, so I think uh, while reading up for this episode, I actually don't even think that they consider subjective binges in the diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder. Mm. It's based very much on the sheer quantity of food eaten. Mm. Um, and I think that there's so many different sides to this. I think that they, uh, I say they, and I don't actually know exactly who, but I do think that there are people that are motivating to update the diagnostic criteria to also include subjective binges. One of the studies that I'd read um, on this also said that individuals with subjective binge eating are less likely to be receiving help or to be offered help for Mm. this problem. It's more so the people that have objective or these massive, um, you know, binge Mm. eating episodes that are that are inclined to be offered help by a medical professional to get psychological help, to get medical help, where Mm. the individuals with subjective binge eating just you know they don't they kind of fall short of what is offered to them which is really sad because Mm. I think okay I I probably can't generalize this to most people and it's just because of my own experience with it but I think that there'd be more people that do struggle with subjective binge eating than than what there might be objective binge Mm. eating because you know it's a lot more subtle and could be a contention point with what you put out there um you know and also these people would be less likely to go and look for help because of how you're feeling so ashamed about it mm. Mm. I think it's also people tend to disregard or 
maybe they don't know, but they tend to disregard subjective binges as, I don't know, something that's really concerning because it's really, it's very much about perception as well. Like Mm. the person might actually not be eating that much food, but for them, there's a perception that they are. And it's also got a lot to do with that loss of control. And it's actually that loss of control that plays a big part in binge eating disorder, like Mm. in binge eating as a whole. But I guess people, because they don't see the physical evidence so much of someone eating an enormous amount of food, it's easier to disregard the subject of binges. Yes, yes. And in the same breath as well, it's interesting, you know, just going back to the study on symptomology that they say that those with subjective binges uh, usually have greater depression um, Mm. or more risk for depression. I think it's rather interesting, but it actually kind of makes sense because if a subjective binge is a lot about perception and how the individual perceives themselves and their activities, it's very much a sort of inward kind of activity, very inward thinking and um, depression also works in that way. It's very, you kind of get trapped in this circle and this, this cycle in your head and it's, mm. it's all very, you turn towards yourself. So it doesn't actually mm. surprise me all that much that there's a, a more significant link there. Mm. Mm. So I'll get into some of the causes of binge eating disorder. Now, it's often a combination of biological, psychological, and environmental factors. There's really a single cause or contributing factor. There are a number of things that we can sort of all or which all work together to contribute towards the development of an eating disorder Um, and I'll break them down into the different categories so the biological causes include a history of weight fluctuation that significantly increases the risk of developing binge eating disorder so if you're prone to a history of dieting or yo-yo dieting there's a higher chance that you might end up with binge eating Research also suggests that there's a connection between hormone imbalances and genetic mutations specific to food addiction. Some studies have revealed a link between low levels of serotonin and binge eating disorder. Now, serotonin is a hormone produced in the digestive tract that plays a role in dictating cellular communication between the brain and the digestive system. So serotonin is the hormone that communicates to the brain telling it which hormones to produce for the body to function properly. And the body needs certain levels of serotonin to function optimally, but not everyone's bodies produce the optimal amount of serotonin. One reason for this is that people have different genes, and these genes determine how much serotonin your body produces. Your genetic makeup is an instruction manual that is inherited from your parents. Uh, that And this instruction manual tells your body what parts are required for the body to function at its best. But where many genetic makeup or instruction manual produces efficient hormones, uh, which makes some people more resilient to certain disorders, some people's instruction manuals call for more or less serotonin than is necessary, which can lead to extreme increases or decreases that throw off precise biology and psychological functions that keep us healthy. The biological functions being stuff like digestion, stress, psychological functions being anxiety, mood, and so on. So there can also be behavioral and psychological causes of binge eating disorder. So often individuals with an extensive history of dieting fall privy to developing an eating disorder, and more specifically binge eating disorder. 
this history of dieting often di- dates back to their adolescent years because we all know that we've grown up in a diet culture for the last couple of decades. Yeah. So dieting and food restriction can trigger hunger cues, which often leave you vulnerable to binge. But the pressure to diet and maintain a specific caloric intake can produce overwhelming feelings of stress, anxiety and shame, which then also often trigger a binge. And then, of course, the environment in which you function and external influences have a large role to play in binge eating disorder. This includes people that you socialize with, uh, whether you've been subject to negative comments or body shaming or surrounded by individuals with body image concerns or low confidence levels that are largely driven by societal ideals on what a body should look like. So when it comes to emotional causes of binge eating disorder, there are certain personality traits that suggest higher predispositions to developing eating disorders such as anorexia and bulimia, but these are not as clear for binge eating disorder. So assertiveness, low self-esteem and a poor body image are often common, but more so overeating due to unhappiness and the inability to cope with feelings or respond well to stress. In both binge eating disorder and anorexia nervosa, trauma often results in emotional triggers that may lead to one or the other. So research shows that people with emotional eating disorders are more likely to have experienced abuse of some form, whether that's physical, emotional, teasing and bullying, parental divorce, or loss of a family member. But... What are the actual, so I spoke a little bit earlier about diagnostic criteria, but what Mm. are the actual symptoms or criteria for diagnosing binge eating disorder? So there aren't that many symptoms, but a few, I guess, distinct ones that they look for when, when they're diagnosing you. So I'll just list the ones that they have listed for the, uh, in the DSM criteria, but It's eating unusually large amounts of foods within a specific amount of time, such as over a two-hour period. Feeling like your eating behavior is out of control is probably one of the biggest ones that they look at. Um, Eating when you're full or not hungry. Eating rapidly during binge episodes. Eating until you're uncomfortably full. Frequently eating alone or in secret. Uh, feeling depressed, disgusted, ashamed, guilty, or upset about your eating, and frequently dieting, possibly without weight loss. Now, often after a binge, you don't try and compensate with laxative or vomiting um, like one with bulimia would, but you may try and diet or eat normal meals by restricting your diet, which may in turn simply lead to more binge eating. So I think the two main ones that they look for there, or at least from what I've read up on, are that loss of control around your Mm. eating. That is um, one of the biggest symptoms that they look for, particularly when distinguishing between the two um, objective and subjective binge eating, I guess, is, you know, that loss of control is the most prevalent factor, but the amount of food that you eat, I guess is subjective or varies depending from person to person. So mm. yeah, I, I know that those are the two main ones that, that the medical professionals use when they, when they diagnose you. And um, who would typically make the diagnosis? Is it just a 
GP or is it uh, like a multidisciplinary team or a psychologist or which medical professionals actually handle this? I think it might vary from, well, from country to country. Traditionally, it should be a team of medical professionals, primarily a combination of your GP and a psychologist that work towards the diagnosis. I think treatment mostly starts with a psychologist when you approach a psychologist. I know here in Australia, and in my case, it was me needing to go to my GP and she made the diagnosis and then sent me off to a psychologist. But I think that that was um, so that I could have my Medicare pay for a mental Mm. health plan for me. Mm. Um, I think more typically it is starting off with a psychologist and, you know, them kind of unpacking what it is that needs unpacking and and I actually don't know whether a psychologist can diagnose something like this, but they can send you back to your medical professional and say, these are the symptoms that we're seeing. Mm. This is what it's likely to be. But yes, it's a combination of a psychologist and your medical professional, your GP. So speaking of treatments, um, I don't think that I, I don't feel like I'm really qualified to talk on treatment because um, my journey has been, uh, not a typical journey and it's something that's still very present and current and that I'm working through and you know unpacking myself but I can comment on what the research said on binge eating disorder so treatment for binge eating disorder is usually managed by your physician and a psychologist um, and seeing a psychologist would be your starting point so they often do treatments um, or different therapy approaches that help you unpack different things now I'm not a psychologist so I can't really go into much detail on this but I can just comment on the different types of therapies that they do one is a cognitive behavioral therapy which could help you cope with issues that trigger your binge eating episodes and give you a better sense of control over the behavior and help you regulate your eating patterns There's an interpersonal therapy approach, which focuses on your relationship with other people, which may lead to binge eating that is triggered by problematic relationships and unhealthy communication skills. And then the other one is dialectical behavior therapy, where you, or it can help you learn behavior skills to tolerate stress, regulate your emotions and improve your relationships with others, therefore reducing the desire to binge eat. Mm Mm-hmm. Medical management includes includes use of certain drugs that are deemed appropriate by your physician, but interestingly include treatment for ADHD um, and then some antidepressants and appetite suppressants. Hmm. Interesting. So it really is a, it's not a, it's unfortunately, it's not the kind of illness or disorder where you just pop a pill and, you know, Bob's your uncle and mm-hmm. life goes on and everything's okay. It really is a multifaceted treatment plan that you actually end up having having to work through. Yeah, and there's also not a one-size-fits-all sort of, you know, slap slapdash, I guess, approach to, to treating it. And I guess the importance of the psychological aspect is probably what I would emphasize most in my case, um, having tried a couple of different or a number of different uh, medical management strategies and having them not work for me just emphasizes how you have to unpack that psychological side behind it because most of it lies in your psyche, right? And your behavior Mm. and the way that you 
you feel around it. And I guess identifying those triggers. So I've, I've always been self-conscious about my eating behaviors and I felt like, um, I need to eat in private. Um, I need to, you know, if I'm moving around during the day, then sitting in my car eating instead of eating in front of people or, taking stuff to my bedroom when I was younger to go and eat in my bedroom. You know, if I, we had a sweet cupboard at home where, you know, it, obviously it was a snack cupboard. So you could go and help yourself to whatever you had there. Mm. And I had the, like these little bowls that I would fill. But then the moment I'd filled these bowls, I would go and sit in my room and eat rather than eating them where everyone could see me eat. Mm. You know, so small little things like that where you feel like you need to hide these behaviors or you feel ashamed about the fact that you're eating or figuring out what it is that triggers you really is what helps get to the root cause of the binge eating and what your inclination Mm. is to want to binge eat. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I, I only realized probably last year, in the beginning of last year, that there's more to my eating behavior than Mm. just eating and then just the way that I feel about it. I was actually chatting to a friend of mine um, and she was talking about seeing a psychologist to help her with her eating. She didn't go into all that much uh, detail about it, but when I walked away from that conversation, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, why would you consult the psychologist around something like that? And the more I looked into Mm. it, the more I was like, shit, there's, there's, there's more to this than than what I'm realizing. And if there's someone that can help, then I don't need to feel this ashamed about it. So, you know, that that's kind of what spurred me on to to look into it a little bit more and to start mm-hmm. identifying my own behaviors for what it was and to start really tuning into how I was feeling when I was eating or in the lead up to whatever I was eating or whatever I was binging on. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And then, yeah, I went off to my GP and she confirmed it for me. So that was beginning of last year. But if you now you've had some time since then, and you you've had some time to also go through the process of treating the disorder. So if we go back to when did it start? Do you remember? Is there a specific event or a trigger um, that maybe kind of flipped that switch? Uh, how did you experience that? Um, I've done a fair bit of reflecting on this and I, I think, um, and I'll I'll say it here for, for anyone that might, I guess, feel like they need to hear it. And this isn't an attack on family or the environment that I grew up in or the people that I surrounded myself with, because I think that that very much comes down to, I don't know, I guess environments, um, ingrained in who you are you know reciprocating behaviors that were I guess demonstrated to you as a child but in my younger years I I can't say there was a very big focus on weight when I was very young but there were Mm. comments around eating the amount that was eaten what was eaten whether it was sugar whether it was healthy you know, so there were comments in my younger years. Um, I distinctly remember one day where I had uh, one of my best friends came to visit me. She lived just around the corner from me and it was my grandfather's birthday and she'd come to to visit for a swim and we 
left the house with cake and there was a comment dropped about how much cake we'd been eating because we were coming back for seconds and thirds and you know whatever and there was a comment dropped I'm not going to mention by who but there was a comment dropped Mm. and you know this friend of mine ended up in the bathroom crying and it was a really difficult situation for her to manage I guess I guess uh, there are multiple things that I can talk about around that but you know just seeing that and reflecting on that now as an adult the impact and the trigger that that could have for me personally yes having grown up around uh food talk we'll call it could potentially Mm. have been one of the um contributing factors but I dated someone in high school who made a big fuss out of what I looked like and body image and wanting to be with someone skinny and needing to exercise and I guess in conjunction with uh at that age, I mean, I was, what, 14, 15, 16. Mm. At that age, everyone in school is worried about what you look like and, <clears throat> you know, what everyone else around you looks yeah. like. I know there was, in primary school, I just changed schools to another, a different primary school. And there was a girl at the school who would come up to me and say to me, Lauren, how much do you weigh? And we would have competitions or it would be like a, a competitive nature behind do you weigh more? Do I weigh more? Who weighs less? Um, you know, and it would be common knowledge around school. Everyone in the classroom was talking about the two of us and what we weighed. You know, I would hear people nattering about it in the corner of the classroom during the day. So that became a big focus from a really young age in primary school as well. And then having walked into this relationship where that became an even bigger focus and how much I ate. I mean, I remember my first diet that I ever really tried was I tried well practically starving myself by eating I was eating strawberries and rock melon all day every day and I nearly passed out at school one day because I just didn't have the energy to to you know function to get by in a day Mm. um anyway that's a little bit besides the point but yes I think that's for me where it started and probably where the trigger was because from that point on weight was always Mm. a very big focus Um, for me and what I looked like was always you know you have to have this perfect body image you have to be skinny you have to look a certain way to be attractive and to be loved and uh, the media nowadays aren't doing anything to help that yes really because those messages are just reinforced uh, in social media in movies in in just about anything I mean you don't have to open a magazine or open a I don't know something and you'll you'll find some airbrushed Mm. model and I think yes that particularly in our time um from when we were very young yes that was a very big focus I mean there was the what did they call them a heroin a heroin body a heroin girl Mm. were you not supposed to have a waistline um was a big thing but yes now nowadays there's a bigger push against um you know body positivity and body awareness and it's commendable but I feel like that damage is already done You know, there's still, despite Mm. people pushing and despite people talking about it, there's still a very large focus on what you look like. And everyone talks about diets and everyone talks about weight loss and everyone talks about, you know, what did I do to shed 20 kilos? What did I do to get my waistline this Mm -hmm. big? So there's a big push for the body positivity now, but there's still a massive focus on having this perfect body. But what is a perfect body you know and that 
particularly mm. for the younger population, like when I was that young, you know, you look at these things and you think that's what I should look like. But the reality of that is no one really looks like that. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that's very true. Is that, and it's, these messages get so deeply ingrained in you. Mm. Um, that these things, I mean, that even these things from primary school, I find it so surprising actually that in primary school already there was that, you know, that you, that what you just described now about the sort of weight competition. And it's, it's, I find it, it's, it's so sad because in primary school, you're still mm. a kid. Um, you, this, this shouldn't even sort of be on your radar. Um, so that's mm. really sad. And these things really, really do get ingrained in you that I mean, even what that's 20, 15 to 20 years later. And it's probably still, very much um, fresh in your oh, memory. Yes. yes, it's very much a point of contention. And that number on the scale, my obsession with the number on the scale probably came from those times. Even now I mm. look back on it and I recall saying like at that time, I, it was a, you know, I weighed, it was anything between a 52 and a 54 kilogram weight. And I look back at that, not thinking, you know, you, you looked good, you were perfect. Why the fuck were you talking about shit like that? I look back at it thinking, isn't that high for such a young age? <sighs> there is so much that needs to happen to improve society and the way we, we, we handle things like body image and self-esteem and, you know, encouraging body positivity. Yeah. But tell me, this is where the kind of eating behavior started, but has there been a trigger that has perhaps made it worse or aggravated? Oh, that's the same thing, really. Aggravated made it worse. But is there a specific trigger maybe in more recent history that um, you think has got to do with the binge eating? Um, yes. I think my loss of control around food started not too long ago actually I've been a big eater before so I think there were behaviors when I was younger that certainly sort of pushed me in the direction of binge eating I am an emotional eater my dad has always said to me um when I'm unhappy I gain weight uh so it's been a big I don't know, not, 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 not a big focus point, but it's been uh, a point of awareness, I guess, over the years. But most recently, I think my most recent or my, my biggest trigger for my behavior came from a relationship that I was in that was, um, do I say it? It was an abusive relationship that I was in, um, not physically, but emotionally, psychologically verbally and my I'm inclined to rebel against anyone telling me that I can't do anything um and I think that it that mm. kind of went hand in hand with what I was experiencing and what I was doing I felt like turning to food was my only comfort and my safe space mm. if I because my home environment wasn't happy and because I was being judged for what I was eating at home I did it in private and I wanted to do it in private and I had a big fat fuck you attitude. You tell me I can't do something. Fuck you. I'll show you that I can do it. So mm. 
that very much contributed to my my behavior I guess around food and my relationship with food developed it was over about a two to three year period where my relationship with food developed from you know I enjoy food on an everyday basis um and I'm allowed to enjoy what I'm eating even though it might not be right for me to I I had periods where I would go to work and I would there was a coffee shop in the hospital that I was working in where my boss and I would often sit down and, you know, have lunch together or we'd have a coffee before the day starts or whatever. And after she'd leave, I would sit there and I'd order two or three meals and I'd eat my way through them because I almost had this sense of, I'm never going to be able to do this again. You know, it was a, it Mm. was almost a, a eat for survival uh, inclination that I had because I felt like I would not be able to go and do it again where tomorrow I'd come back and I'd do the same thing and the day after I'd come back and you know I'd do this or I'd order something different off the menu or I'd eat until I feel like I'm going to pop and then some because you know it's almost this mm. instinctive I need to get as much as what I can now so that I don't have to go and show what I'm feeling at home and then walking mm. in at home, almost anticipating that negative, um, you know, what are we eating today? What are you cooking? Why are you cooking like that? You shouldn't be cooking that. That's unhealthy. You shouldn't be eating that. That's unhealthy. I mean, fuck, I got told that eating salad on a daily basis was unhealthy. Excuse me? Logically, I knew, you know, logically, you know these things. But that emotional buildup, that like, you know, breaking you down on things that you should know that's common I I don't know it was just this fucking warped concept that we had but yeah that emotional build-up for me was a very big trigger to my behavior around food and my feeling Mm. like it's now or never you do it now and you're never going to have this opportunity again where if I think if I just had a Mm. step if I'd been able to take a step back and just say, you know, it's not it's not as though you're never going to eat again. And it's not as though you're never going to eat something you enjoy again. Mm. Things might have looked a little bit different. But because I was unhappy, I was projecting that onto food. And food helped me numb my emotions. I didn't need to feel while I was eating because it gave me this instant gratification. It gave me this um, <clears throat> satisfaction around, you know, I feel good now while I'm eating this. So I don't have to deal with the other shit. I don't have to look at what I'm really feeling. Mm. And even after that, and sorry, even after that relationship, that sort of lingered to help me numb my food. It became a safe space and a comfort zone mm. for me to eat. And did you find that when you, when you felt this kind of urge to eat, was it the act of eating? Was it that there was a specific food you were craving or was it like, I don't know if it's really the right way to describe it, but in a sense, keeping, keeping yourself busy by, I don't know, eating that chewing motion or whatever. So you don't have to think mm, about distraction. Yeah. Um, I think it was a combination of all of them. Uh, the distraction Mm -hmm. it was definitely a distraction from what I was feeding but there was also very much an instant gratification because it felt good and feeling good 
was better than feeling <clears throat> than feeling the emotion that I had and the the build up and the anger and the resentment that I had inside. Mm. Those would probably be the two main ones. Yeah, for me, I think it was a a masking behavior. It masked any negative emotion and replaced it with something positive. Mm. That makes sense. It's really quite something to think about. And I mean, I'm I'm talking about this, but also in other aspects. If you just look back at the relationships that you have in life and how big of an impact they can have mm. um, on you, whether that's a romantic relationship or a family relationship. Um, yeah, it's... Um, you know, it's, it's something... Not always. Sorry, it's something that um, I think it's... There's such a fine line between how much to focus on it, how much to comment on it, because I now have a fear that if I have kids one day, you know, dropping comments like saying that's not healthy shouldn't be a thing. I'm afraid of doing that because the relationship that I've developed with food now is, you know, I look at any sort of carbohydrate as an, or any sort of white carbohydrate as unhealthy where it really isn't, you know, mm. it's, it's food that your body needs. It's, it's nutrition that your body needs to function, to give you energy, to, to, I don't know, function well mm. on a day-to-day basis where I feel like eating stuff like potato is bad for you or eating rice is bad for you. So my, my approach to it or my, I don't know, maybe something that I'm still sort of dealing with and still figuring out for myself is, how much do you talk about it around those around you or around the kids that I might one day have? Mm. Because it's not as though it was spoken in my household. You know, my mom and dad didn't come and say, don't eat your rice. It's not healthy or whatever. There was always bread in the house. There was always, you know, our meals consisted of protein, carbohydrates, and vegetables. It was just that sort of standard, you know, what a plate looks Mm. like. And it was good food so that development of that came more with comments about um don't eat too much of that or don't eat don't eat that rather eat this and not only from the people in my household but I guess what I'm getting at here I'm losing my train of thought a little bit but what I'm getting at here is you know how much do you talk about food how much do you lay emphasis on what's healthy or what's good Mm. for you or what's not good for you because there's such a a narrow line or a narrow boundary or barrier between what could potentially be toxic or what could be negatively inclined and instill negative behavior over just viewing food as nutrition and food for your body and something that's good and nice to eat and you can enjoy it, but you Mm. don't have to feel like you're losing out or you don't have to feel like some one particular thing that you're eating is wrong. And I think that's correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's a big, part of binge eating disorder as well is this kind of all or nothing Mm. thinking but it's also this kind of all or nothing thinking that really perpetuates you know this sort of diet culture dieting lifestyle that also then often goes hand in hand with binge eating disorder because you tend to see food as as either good or bad yes and you know even if in your head you know and you know you have the awareness of macronutrients and you know that yes you know, there's foods that are more nutrient-dense than others, that it's not really good or bad, it's et cetera, et cetera. It's still, it's extremely hard to shake that of it's good or bad 
uh, like you say, is that just now considering that even though you know better and you, you've learned a lot, but it still feels like white carbohydrates are bad mm-hmm. foods. Yes. And the media now is very guilty of, um, I guess, instilling these different perspectives on that diet culture. And even, I guess, having that diet culture that's so, so, so wrong. Um, but yes, it's very much a, an all or nothing approach. It's very much a, you know, you build these belief systems and these relationships over time that aren't necessarily reflective of the truth. I mean, I'm now um, learning so much. There's this, um, I'm learning so much from someone that I'm I'm talking to about food and I guess the nutritional value that food holds and what sort of food should be focused on. But there's no... I don't know. There's no real, there there is no good and bad sugar. Yes. You know, in moderation is okay. Um, it doesn't, and fuck, Mm. I mean, I used to believe that eating the sugar in fruit was bad. You know, there's still very much a diet culture of, um, don't eat too much fruit because the fruit is bad for you. Uh, The sugar in the fruit is bad for you. Rather eat vegetables, but there's sugar in vegetables as well. Like what the fuck do you do? How do you get away from Mm. it? Um, Mm. I've forgotten what your question was. I'm sorry. Don't worry. I forgot what my question (laughs) was as well. So we also know that um, our mind and our thoughts uh, hold incredible power. And it can really influence us to go one way or the other. And I think you have also previously mentioned to me about feeling like you know what you should be doing and you're trying to to do all the right things to stop feeling or to stop engaging in this kind of binge behavior. But then somewhere along the line, it doesn't, it doesn't quite work out that way. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about those kinds of thought processes. Yes. So I guess my biggest battle has been a bit of a cyclic battle between knowing what I should be doing and what I should be doing, being a part of that diet culture and, you know, the healthy eating. So in hindsight, I guess my, my, um, my perceptions of what I should be doing were also warped, but knowing what I should be doing and then feeling like I can't follow through with it and then feeling like a failure. And then from there, it's just a, oh, well, fuck it. You throw your hands up and I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want then anyway. Um, So it's been a lot of, you know, I should be doing this, but I struggle to do that. Why can't I do it? Um, And then you're just this failure. You're just, you know, you're never going to get there. And it sort of spirals into this negative self-talk. And you'll often hear people say, you know, you need to have the willpower to deal with it, or you need to, you need to have the motivation and the perseverance to push through. And it's not as though you Mm. don't have that willpower or that motivation to push through. You want to, and you want it so fucking bad. You really want to get to that point where it's not an issue for you to, Mm to struggle with food on a day-to-day basis or to feel like you don't have control when you're eating. Um, I think 
you wake up in the morning and you know you have this today's the day I'm going to do so well um and you have so much motivation to to push through and then your day starts and you start off so well you've planned your meals you have packed your diet or your your lunchbox for the day and come 12 o'clock you've had two meetings already you've had some really difficult clients you've had emails that have fucked you off you you know you've had all these things and just as you go you're sort of pouring from that cup just to get through the day just to get through your day-to-day actions that your eating becomes last resort and it becomes something that you don't want you Mm. know you don't you don't have the energy to focus on it you want to and then you sit there you sit down for lunch or you drive past you walk past the cafeteria or whatever the case may be and you see something that will help you feel better because that masks your emotions. It helps you, you know, it instills that positive feeling into what you're, you're currently feeling. It will take you mm. to the complete opposite spectrum from where you're at. And you look at it thinking, fuck, I really shouldn't. I know I said today was the day, but I, for me, it was a, um, you know, I really shouldn't, but you know, fuck it. It's going to help me feel better. So why not just do it? Mm. And that, restart again tomorrow so by the time you get to the end of the day it's not as though you don't have that willpower it's just that you don't have the capacity to focus on what you need to focus because you've been dishing it out to everyone throughout the day or to just to get through your day which oftentimes can be stressful Mm. Mm -hmm. and then tomorrow you start again and it's just this this endless spiral that I guess perpetuates that behavior even more because you have that good intention today you restrict what you're eating today I've restricted what I've eating so tonight I come back and I just want to eat more and then Mm. you binge and then tomorrow you feel bad about it and then you stand and you look in the mirror and you think fuck I've done it again you can't do this um you're such a failure Mm. and you feel like you're never going to get there and you feel like you can't share that with the people around you either you know, you, you feel so bad about yourself. You feel so shit, but you don't want to show these weaknesses to the people around you. You don't want to show the people around you that what's going on inside is this, like, I don't know, this, this degrading negative self-talk where, um, the way that I used to speak to myself was shit that I would never dream of saying to anyone around me. Um, you know, and then you look at yourself with this utter disgust. If I had to paint a picture of what I was looking at, like close my eyes and I don't know, paint this, it would be like a, a fucking disgusting, slimy gremlin, um, of a picture that, that would be put out there just on the perception of yourself. Um, Mm. and then needing to put on that face for the world and still have a fuck you attitude when you come out on the other side of it. It's such a fucked up process, but yeah, I think it's, um, it's just this endless cycle that not having help with it and not identifying, identifying it for what it is and understanding that you don't have to go through that. You know, you don't have to do that alone. You don't have to sit with these negative thoughts every day is I don't know it's so important to know that it's not necessary but it's so difficult to flip to that opposite end of the spectrum because this is I mean this has been 20 20 years in the making so to now just suddenly and for me someone that 
presents myself as a really proud and strong person, showing those weaknesses to someone does not come easily. It's not something that I'll easily admit to to someone that I do struggle in any respect, not, not necessarily just food. The fact that I'm struggling with anything isn't something that I'll openly admit to someone. Um, and now to have to come and talk mm. about stuff like emotion and loss of control, loss of control around food, it's, it's, it's not an easy talking point and it's not something that's easy to admit either. Yeah, I get that. And people around you don't understand. They, they, they think it's exactly just that. Oh, you don't have enough willpower or, you know, you're not. Those external comments, I had someone ask me the other day, like, what is it? What is the thought process behind it? How do you not make that decision and just follow through with it? And it was a completely innocent question and I 100% respect where it was coming from. It was an open conversation that I'd started to talk about it and to, you know, to, I guess, unpack um, with this person. But in... If someone had asked me that question, even just a few months ago, I would have jumped to the defense because you feel attacked in that situation. You feel like someone Mm. is judging you, is refusing to try and understand things from your points. And then that just perpetuates that feeling of being a failure. Like I can't do it. Like almost a belittling experience. And then, that that negative self-talk just spirals even more people Mm. who don't understand and that tells you how it should be done really just amplify that feeling around wanting to eat it makes it that much worse and for someone that's an an emotional eater I have a big fat fuck you attitude I feel shit about myself already so my crutch is to eat and is to try and make myself feel better Mm. So that's when I turn to food again. It's actually just such a such a vicious cycle. And it's like you kind of, no matter which way you turn or, you know, no matter what people say one way or another, it just kind of feeds back into the cycle. Mm. So it's incredibly, I can imagine, it's incredibly hard to get out of. Mm. So you touched on earlier a little bit about uh, when we were speaking about how binge eating disorder is treated, um, the kind of professionals that are involved. Um, but for you personally, what has your treatment journey looked like since going to the doctor, since getting your diagnosis? What has that journey looked like until now? I think mine hasn't been a typical journey. I started off with trying to see a psychologist and to talk about it and... Um, I got to the point where I felt like it wasn't a good fit to be talking to this, Mm. this individual. Um, So I veered away from that psychological approach, I guess, Um, or at least that psychological approach of having someone else to guide you through it and launched a bit into my own, I don't know, reflection, if, if I can call it that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I got to a point where understanding my own triggers became a big focus point for me and and identifying my behaviors on a day-to-day basis. Identifying the behaviors in the moment 
was probably that big big trigger for me because or, or or a big one of the biggest factors for me to help me sort of shift away from that mindset because mm. even though I was still engaging in the behavior it was more apparent to me why I was doing it and I could unpack that for myself and I'm someone that's big on internal reflection growth and you know unpacking my mindset behind it so understanding what the triggers are and then being able to unpack the why behind it in the moment while I'm eating mind you but still being able to unpack the why behind it made a very big difference um I'm now at a point where it's easier to say no to something because and don't get me wrong it's been one fucking big journey but to get to the point where I don't feel like I'm going to miss out anymore. You know, the food is always going to be there and you don't have to eat until you feel like a stuffed up sausage to get that satisfaction with food. You know, a few bites of the food should be enough to satisfy that craving. I still really struggle with leaving food on my Mm. plate. That's, and I don't know if that was coming maybe coming from South Africa where there's less privilege and you know people that don't have food maybe it was just the the age in which our parents grew up because I distinctly remember grandparents saying finish the food on your plate you know that was a thing I really 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 struggle to leave something on my plate especially if it's only one or two bites of food And that's Mm. something that I'm currently working on is I'm consciously putting in that effort to leave food on my plate so that it doesn't become, or so that it doesn't, you know, emphasize that feeling. And I feel like I have to stuff it in just for the sake of finishing what's there, especially if it's something I'm enjoying. So one of my favorite things to eat right now is you get like a little cracker bread with cream cheese, avo and smoked salmon on it. And it is, oh, if you want to treat me, you give me that. But leaving one or two bites of that on my plate is one of the most difficult things I think I have ever done. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and and I guess just working through those processes, I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer your question fully um, because I think my journey has been a little bit different to what most or what other people's journeys could look like. But yes, that, that hmm. psychological sort of approach to unpacking the why behind it for me has really made a very big difference and understanding that there is no good and bad in food is a big mindset shift for me that's a very big point that I'm still struggling with it to be honest um but yes identifying that there's no such thing as a bad food or a bad carbohydrate like everything in moderation but I guess understanding the relationship of what you want to achieve with food and with your body and what you need to fuel your body with has become a focus point rather than this is good. This is bad. Don't eat that. Don't eat this. Hmm. It's really important. And I think it again, emphasizes because so much of this is process driven and understanding what triggers you and what is your thought process and the process you take in, you know, your relationship with food and how you know your eating behaviors and I think it also shows you as well that if you find the right psychologist and you have a good fit with them it can be extremely helpful mm. to also have that psychological support in working through these processes not to say that you can't do it on your own 
Um, I'm actually reading a book at the moment as well, which is written by a, I think he's one of the world experts on bulimia and eating disorders and binge eating. Mm. And um, he's also got a self-help kind of program um, that's also got, I mean, it's, it's been published and, and researched and reviewed in academic research for like the last, I guess, 20 years. So there are resources like that that people can use. Um if for whatever reason, you know, maybe their health insurance doesn't cover psychologists um, or that's not something they feel comfortable with. Mm. I mean, there are also ways and means of doing it on your own. It's not easy, mm. um, but it's not impossible. Absolutely. And I guess for me, the starting point for that is a self-awareness of what you are feeling and what you are doing. Identifying that you are struggling is the first step to... Or, or on that journey of recovery or getting past this. I don't know if recovery is ever really a thing with eating disorders. It's always going to be something that you, you know, you fall back on or hmm. at least in my case, it's something that I think about all the time, but identifying it for what it is and having coping mechanisms will make a difference. So that first step would be just to acknowledge, you know, I'm struggling that's it. On that point, I do have something to say from my side too. Mm. And you know how they say that women who spend a lot of time together end up with uh, their menstrual cycles end up sinking. Mm. Um, and that happens because of the pheromones that influence each other. Um, but I think that you and I have this in common in more than one area of our lives. So um ever since you've taken action on working on your binge eating disorder and working on your relationship with food it's kind of forced me to take a long hard look at the reality of my own eating behaviors and relationship with food and after a fuckload of introspection and research um I've had to also come to terms with the fact that I also in all likelihood have or have had binging disorder or at the very least some kind of combination of disordered eating and perhaps a food addiction. And for pretty much as long as I can remember, I've been in a cycle of trying to lose weight by just about any means possible, failing after a couple of days and then sinking into this pit of self-loathing and low self-esteem, which would then also uh, include significant and regular binges as well. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, looking back and, and looking at sometimes what I was capable of eating in one day, it's shocking. Mm. And, you know, I often stand in front of my mirror, look at myself and think, you pathetic failure of a fat fuck. Because it was exactly what we spoke about earlier. You start off your day with the best of intentions. You've got your plan. You've got the points that you put in place. And, and it's going to be a good day. And some way, somehow, it just isn't. And every day becomes like that. And it feels like this eternal cycle that you're trapped in. And you 
You don't know how to get out. Mm. Well, you think you do, and it just never works. So, it uh, probably seems a bit weird to thank you for seeking treatment <laughs> for your binge eating disorder. But honestly, thank you. Because it kind of ripped my safety net out from underneath me. And it forced me to open up my own can of worms. Um, so yeah, for me, this is all very new and raw and fresh. And um, I'm, so I'm making the effort to see a dietitian and a psychologist who are specialized in eating disorders so that I can get to the root of my own disordered eating. Um, I don't think it'll be an easy process by any means, mm. because I think also, as we've seen from our discussion, is these things build up over time as well. Mm. It's usually a product of 5, 10, 15, 20 years of various influences. So it's not an overnight process to overcome. Um, and also, like how you say, it's probably not something that you ever really recover from. Mm. It's something that I think it gets easier to navigate and you you have processes that, you know, you, you, you navigate these, what used to be disordered eating behaviors, but it's not something that ever just disappears. Yeah. So I need to deal with a shit ton of psychological crap and somehow lose about 20 kilograms for my own long-term health. But at least I'm starting somewhere. And that is thanks to you. So, thanks. First of all, it's a pleasure. <laughs> um, but I think what one, one of the hardest things to come to terms with, the, the hardest realizations to have is to identify that you are struggling, particularly for us who are proud, strong people who don't want to, or, you know, you struggle to admit fault or you struggle to admit that you could be doing better in any way, shape or form. So identifying or admitting even just to yourself that there is something wrong or that you are struggling in some way is a huge step in itself and well done to you for taking that step and for identifying it even if the process is a difficult one to get started and it's 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 not an easy process to come to terms with it's not an easy realization to have because it almost comes across as a weakness where it isn't it isn't a weakness it is something that you are struggling with and it is a chronic condition um, as cliche as what that is to to say or as what it sounds, um, it is something that you struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis that you struggle to have control over and identifying that and coming to terms with that is one of the biggest hurdles or one of the biggest mountains that you will climb because just of who you are as a person. So well done to you for identifying that and for taking that step and for admitting that you need a little bit of help with getting to where you want to be and it can be done it can and I am here to support every step of the way um I know saying that on the podcast where we are two friends is <laughs> is a little bit um 
<laughs> assumed, I guess, as well. But, you know, you, you don't have to go through it alone and you don't have to do it alone. And if you need to lean on anyone, then lean on them. You know, it's difficult to lean on people, but lean on the people that you need to and ask them for help and talk it out. And people might not always be able to help. They might not um, be able to say the right things, but knowing that you can go to someone and that you can speak to someone makes a huge difference. And you have been a part of that journey for me, being able to come and talk to you and offload and have someone that understands what it is that I'm feeling in that moment that has been through something similar, that makes a big difference as well. So, you know, use, utilize what you've got around you, um, but you don't have to do it alone. And you've got people that love and care for you and will help as much as what they can, but good for you and good on you for, for identifying that and admitting it to yourself. I don't know how to respond other than thanks. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I'll round us up. Um, so in conclusion, um, or my takeaways, I don't really have much in the line of takeaways from today's episode. Um, I guess it's more of an awareness that these things do exist and to validate that if anyone feels ashamed about their eating behaviors or feels weak or unworthy, or you don't know what to do about it, that you should know that it's more prevalent than what we think it is and that you're not alone. The first step is to identify it for what it is and coming to terms with that. That's the beginning of setting this this healing process in motion. Personally, I'm still dealing with the reality of living with something like this and I'm struggling to deal with that concept of being weak and not being able to follow through when I've decided to change my lifestyle. To anyone that might be struggling with something like this, know that you're not alone. Know that there's more than willpower, or there's more to it than willpower and motivation. And that this is a chronic condition that can be treated with the help from the right professionals, and that you can overcome. It just takes identifying a behavior in yourself to set that process in motion. And it's a long journey. It has many ups and downs, but it can be done. And you don't have to suffer in silence. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's the end of it for us today. Um, thank you for sticking around if you've made it to this point. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head on over to whichever platform you're listening on. Rate and review us. Leave us a little five-star review. Nothing less. We expect nothing less than five-star. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay, that's a little bit of a You can't be perfect all the time. Regardless, give us some sort of a rating and let us know your thoughts. Until next time. Bye. Bye.